Welcome to the Business of Family. I'm your host, Mike Boyd, and this is my look into the world of multi-generational wealth creation, family enterprise, stewardship, family office investing, and the curation of a legacy. On the podcast, I interview members of some of the world's most interesting families to hear how they pass knowledge, resources, values, and wealth to the next generation. I hope you'll enjoy sharing this learning journey with me and would greatly appreciate any feedback, resources, or referrals you have to offer. To sign up to my weekly Business of Family newsletter, go to newsletter.mikeboyd.com.au. Chris Hershand is a third-generation shareholder and chairman of Missouri-based Hershand Enterprises, the largest family-owned themed attractions company in the U.S., HFE properties span 26 locations, 10 states, and employ over 10,000 people who collectively host over 13 million guests annually at properties including Silver Dollar City, Dollywood, and the world-famous Harlem Globetrotters. Chris, it's so nice to have you with us today. I can't wait to hear more of your story. Thanks for having me. So, the mission of Hershand Enterprises is to create memories worth repeating. I love that. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the company and the various lines of business that you're in today? Sure. So it's uh, really, it's start, we started out as a, uh, a road trip. My grandparents and their two boys were sort of, they had a little bit of wanderlust in the 40s, 1940s. And as a family, one of the things they enjoyed doing together was getting in their car, which was a big deal, and driving around. And they were kind of wildflower hunters or something like that, you would say. And they found the southern Missouri Ozark Mountains, which are kind of hard scrabble hills. Certainly then was not a prosperous part of the country, had a reputation for being a little bit uh, maybe rough even, but it was beautiful. And they fell in love with its beauty. And this was from Chicago to southwest Missouri, would have been a several-hour drive uh, day or so. And um, they made their way down there repeatedly and over time made friends with two sisters named Miriam and Genevieve Lynch, who themselves owned a piece of property on which there was a cave, like an underground cave, like an actual, you know, dark, wet, cold cave, which to them seemed like a great place to bring tourists. And uh, my grandparents seemed to agree. And my dad and my uncle seemed to think this was the greatest thing that had ever happened to them in their whole life. They were teenagers at the time. And their parents wound up signing a lease to take over operations of this cave from these sisters. It was a 99-year lease. They signed the first one in 1950. And they would travel down from Chicago in the summers and guide cave tours. They had... I. I want to say seven employees who were there when they signed the lease and they became uh, employees of my uh, family, our first family business employees. And, and they worked together with them directly to make improvements to the cave, things like replacing the wooden stairs with concrete stairs and things like that. And they learned directly leadership lessons, obviously life in the rural Ozarks lessons. I mean, my grandmother was a librarian. Uh, my grandfather was a Danish immigrant to Chicago, sort of an adventurous type, had been all over the world, but was not known for his, you know, spelunking ability. So they learned a lot from the people that were there. 
And they gradually made improvements to this cave to the point where there were enough people wanting to come into the cave that they had a line. And so to address the line to get in, they gave them some diversions up top outside the cave. And surprisingly, that was more attractive to more people than going down inside a cave was. So that became what we call today a theme park. Uh, that park is named Silver Dollar City, uh, which has a story in itself, but the naming that is. And uh, Silver Dollar City gradually attracted thousands and then tens of thousands and today millions of visitors. And it's, um, it's a mix of rides and uh, attractions and shows and, and just natural beauty in this truly, I mean, it is a really beautiful part of the world. And then over time, that one part grew to two to three to four different parts of the country and so on. So that's the business we're in. We're in the business of family entertainment. We like to take uh, a family together and show them somewhere between two to eight hours of uh, great times together where they can uh, really kind of pause together and enjoy just a simple day. And that's increasingly difficult in our world uh, to carve out. And we feel like it's become more precious to us as a mission over time. And we really, uh, we really feel strongly about it. We really feel very passionately about it. Our entire family and leadership team could tell you our mission, which is, I think, I, I think every leader would like to believe that's the case. I, I believe it, it is actually the case in our company. That's incredible. So today it is a, a theme park business. And is it primarily around rides and experiences or is there still a lot of natural elements to it like the story starting with the original cave exploration. The simplest way to describe our business is a theme park business. That's our predominant source of revenue and profit contribution, but we have derivative experiences like water parks or uh, other themed attractions, dinner theaters and things like that in the many of the same, but not entirely the same. But we also, we've expanded into touring shows. We own the Harlem Globetrotters, which tour all over the world. We bought that company in 2013. We also own Jeep tour business in Sedona, Arizona. It also has operations up in the Grand Canyon in Las Vegas. It's called Pink Jeep Tours. And we purchased that more recently. And But really, it's the same. It's a different expression of the same idea, which is getting a group of uh, people together. We, we aim at families, but obviously, we're, we're recognized. We serve a lot of different kinds of uh, customers, corporate groups and things like that and weddings and all that fun stuff. But families is the simplest way to describe it. And that's what really galvanizes us. And so when we get a, for example, a family on a Jeep tour, they are laughing uh, from start to finish. There's something about going, you know, at those obscene angles in a Jeep up and down uh, rocks in the American Southwest that just is thrilling and safe and super fun. And it's just something people tend to really cherish. I love it. It sounds like an incredible business built around a really strong mission to bring families together. Just on a side note, I'd love to learn a little bit more about the day-to-day operations of a business of this size. Yeah, it's so it's a complex business in a way. Operationally, it's very complex. The model itself is is not particularly complex. Uh, you, you you pay to come in. And then you get a basket of attractions included in that price. And then we hope that you choose to spend money on food and merchandise uh, while you're here. So and most people have been to a theme park. And that model is substantially unchanged 
since uh, our inception in the 50s. I mean, our business began about the same time as Walt Disney was creating Disneyland in California and other. It was kind of a time in America, if you think about it, with Route 66 and some of these iconic emblems of America where people were highly mobile, there was disposable income, and there were, frankly, a lot of what I'd call roadside attractions out there um, that people could kind of stop and enjoy and did. And so we were lucky that we had, I think, great ownership. I'm not referring to myself because I didn't come along until the 70s, but we had really disciplined owners that wanted to reinvest and were serious about management principles and growth and and careful stewards of everything that we'd been uh, given. And so our business thrived, not to the level that Disney's did, obviously, but different markets and different products and a media empire versus you know a theme park forward thing. So very different. But inside of that, simplicity is one of the more complex businesses that I could put a finger on. We have food and beverage operations that are equivalent to any restaurant business. You know, we've got merchandise operations and the number of SKUs and the number of locations we we serve inside our park, any one park, are crazy. Uh, And we've got kind of grab-and-go food. We've got $2 trinkets and we've got, you know, $75, you know, things we we bought from a vendor. And then we've got $3,000 things that we made ourselves on site, beautiful glasswork or ornamental ironwork or something from our uh, blacksmiths. So, all of those things contribute to the complexity. I think we've seen some of that. We've felt very much like the pandemic has underscored. It certainly punched us in the mouth, but it also underscored the great need that every human being has to be with other people mm. and to and to relax with other people and to fellowship and break bread and laugh and you know just share experiences together. It's we're more confident now than we were going into this thing about the need for what we do. You mentioned the family, the board, and management before. Let's get into the stewardship of the business. How is it governed today? Is it overseen by a family council? Is there a family board? If so, how does all of that operate for you? Well, so I would say we have an unusual governance system. It's not unusual among, I think it's not unusual for a family of our age and size I could point to a dozen uh, similar families, but I think it's unusual when people, most people think about a family business. So if you go from the ground up, you've got employees who are directly talking with customers, guests on a daily basis, right? They're loading rides, they're, they're greeting you at the gate, they're taking your temperature and, and handing you a mask. Those are the most important pieces in, in our puzzle. Those people drive, they're over, well, in a, in a 2019 size year, we've got you know over 10, nearly 12,000 people doing that work. And so that workforce is stewarded by a team of obviously full-time, deeply experienced managers, supervisors, leaders, and talent that comes from all over the United States. And, and they've been with us by and large for a number of, of years. This is not an industry where you can easily drop in from you know just retail or just, uh, for example, hospitality. We own a few hotels. You know, the, the way we run a hotel, while in some ways identical to what Marriott or any other hotel chain would do, is just a little bit different. And it's not because we're different for its own sake. We are part of a, a theme park or a water park or some other attraction in the area that, that drives a certain behavior. 
So those two groups of employees, I'd say, are our frontline and our leadership team uh, work hand in hand under a CEO who, in our case, is a non-family member and has been since uh, 1991 or 92, was our first non-family CEO. So I'm recording this in 2020 with you, so that's nearly 30 years of experience with non-family CEO, and I believe we're on our fourth right now, and I should know that from by heart, but uh, fourth, maybe the fifth. Uh, I could tell you their names, but then I'd have to pause and add it up. So, uh, And then that CEO is hired and shepherded by a board of directors, and our board of directors is majority independent. So like the philosophy behind our CEO, we're looking for great talent and accountability and performance out of our board. Uh, our board's been majority independent since, I want to say, 1971, so nearly 50 years there. And so that majority independent board is selected by our stockholder group, which is our family. And the family, when it comes to our ownership role, that's our primary job. We elect directors. The, the more important job before that is we set objectives. And so that's something we can talk about as we, as we get into this more. But we set our objectives. We hand those to the board that we elect. And then that board hires the CEO who then cares for and provides leadership to you know, 10, 12,000 folks making it happen. It's an incredible structure. And to have a, an independent, a majority independent board for a family-owned company, what led to that and what experience have you had? I mean, it's obviously working for you, but it's certainly not what we see most commonly for family-owned companies. Why that model? I can't take credit for its uh, inception, but I can tell you that it came from a principle that I think most any of us could appreciate. So the principle would just simply be humility and accountability. My uncle was is just kind of a voracious student. He's the guy who went in and you know started learning from people who had no not even high school education in our first um, operation. And he was humble enough to realize he had something to learn from these people. And you know he was a graduate of Northwestern University later in his life. He was a Marine Corps. He served in the Marine Corps. I mean, it's just a He's just a naturally gifted leader, but the, his biggest single gift is his humility. And so there's that, I don't know everything I need to know. And sometimes when I think I do is maybe when I need to be on the lookout the most. There's a school of thought in a lot of families, and I hear it all the time of, you know, I know this business better than any board member is ever going to know this business. And that's true. That's not your board member's primary role to be experts on your business. They're really there to be uh, a resource for you, a check for you, and in a business like ours with an increasingly complex investor base, a, a, num a more numerous shareholder base, they also provide a level of protection. I don't mean like a mafia Don would offer protection, but more like it's again, it's a humility, it's a check, it's a are you sure? Does this serve your shareholders' needs? Does this really get it? And and vice versa, it sort of protects an executive from the vicissitudes and the ups and downs of a family's natural energy, which ebbs and flows on things that have nothing to do with the business cycle oftentimes. So that's been, you know, we had a, I think my uncle went to a conference in the, probably in the sixties and he met a guy who became one of our first board members. And this guy just put his finger in my uncle's chest and said, you need to have a board and it can't be, you know, your golfing buddies, you know, and this guy's name was Alan Mathis and Alan Mathis served on our board faithfully for, I don't know, at least a decade as one of our original board members. 
and just truly shaped and formed, you know, our board culture and how the board culture served the business. It's not a, a club for uh, CEOs. It's a way to serve your leadership team and serve all your guests ultimately and such. So we were really lucky because from the very beginning in this little business in the Missouri Ozarks, uh, which was not a big business and was not a sexy business. I mean, theme parks, even in the 60s, were not considered, you know, a growth, <laughs> you know, a, you know, there was it was not the Google of the 60s. Yeah. It was it was just a cave tour operation with some attractions atop. <laughs> and so by the time we had our board in the 70s, you know, but we were able to attract. And this is another thing is your business is the humility of an owner who wants a true board, a fiduciary board even, is so attractive to high quality board members, high quality business thinkers and leaders that they want to be a part of that. It really doesn't matter if you're making mayonnaise packets. It's, and no offense to those of you who are in the mayonnaise packet business, but I'm just <laughs> trying to think of a business that, that doesn't sound very lively. It is way more about the posture of the owner. My uncle had enough humility and, and innate curiosity to be a great leader and a great fit for an independent board. It's incredible. A, a couple of follow-ups there, if you don't mind. You mentioned the independent board is the right thing for the to support the leadership team, but this doesn't mean that their family are hands-off. You're not exclusively owners, are you? The family is still, including yourself, woven into the fabric of this business, and a select number of you are on that board, I imagine, and, and still playing a key role in shaping the future. Yeah, so it's interesting because I, I think there's a well, I think it's interesting. I, I can't. I can't know for sure that it actually is, but I think there's a there's a jump. It's important for a, somebody to understand where they are in the cycle. Like a G one business, let's just take an early G two business. So the children are now kind of more actively of ownership age. Let's just say the children of the founder are in their thirties. That's a different stage, and you need different things from your board than what we do now. We have extremely fractionalized ownership in a good way, not extremely, but I mean, we don't have a single voice that dominates in terms of its equity holdings or its influence over the business. There's no big block of trust shares or anything like that, that a single person can move. And so our board functions in that way, very much like a more broadly owned company, much less like a private equity, much more like a public company. Private equity owned company has a general partner that it's serving. That's ultimately, and, that, and whoever owns their you know, 11x EBITDA debt load, but uh, sorry, that's that's mean, but um, <laughs> but accurate, <laughs> but accurate. So and so and then if you're similarly, if you are a smaller company with three or four shareholders, one of whom is the founder and owns 80 percent of your shares, right? That's a totally different situation, and that's much more like where we were when we started. We had two brothers who essentially owned half the business together. Now, again, to their credit, they were relentless on making sure that neither one of them drove the agenda that they always offered their ideas hopefully they were in concert when they came to the board with a we'd like to what do you think kind of thing but there were times when they were in conflict and my dad and my brother i'm sorry my dad and his brother my uncle would put forth ideas and often they would even argue the other guy's side so they'd change who was sponsoring which idea and they were that that that's a great debate technique because it forces you to acknowledge the other guy has some pretty, there's some merit here. And sometimes the board would surprise them and side with one or the other that they wouldn't have expected. 
you know, that, that again, that just goes to, that's where they were in that life stage. We would never do that now because that would imply that there is a, well, we try to keep the personalities of the family sort of coming to the board through a funnel. We want the personalities of the family to come out in a social setting with the board. We do a lot of dinners. We do lots of things. We want our board to know our family and to have a, have an attachment to our family Though they're not our friends per se, they're, we're, we're friends with them, but that's not their primary purpose. We want them to be treated well and honored and enjoyed, and we want that same uh, sort of relationship back. But their primary role is to be truth tellers and to kind of tell us there is something wrong with your thinking. And, and they don't need to be totally concerned with, well, what does this person think or what does that person think? Because there are too many of us now, and that would be a waste of energy. And we engineer our systems on the family side to your question, finally, (laughs) we engineer our systems on the family side so that uh, there's kind of always a few family members who are around the key decisions that would naturally come to the owner's group. So it's not always me as chairman. It's never me alone as chairman. One of my greatest needs is to have a few other family members in on all that thinking with me. And so I call them my thought partners. I mean, formally, we call them an owner's council. And then we have, yes, a family council that is a little more broadly focused on the family and less on the business. But there's a lot of interaction between the two. And then we've got our family assembly and we have meetings and gatherings there at least twice a year. But we do a lot of updates and we we share a lot of information back and forth. So the family is kind of constantly around our business, but rarely in the business. And the specific counts, if you want to think of it that way, are we've, you know, we've got somewhere around, I want to say 54 family members, including spouses and, you know, children and uh, even a couple ex-wives. We, 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 um, we still consider family for a couple specific reasons. And by the way, that's one of the hardest things you have to do as a larger family is define family. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. It I'd seems, love to get into that. <laughs> it, it seems so obvious when it's mom, dad, and the kids, but it gets harder. Uh, marriage, remarriage, unmarriage, uh, you know, stepchildren, it gets interesting. So we define the family. We say there's 54 of us there. There's, I think, five members of the family council. The family council is, again, more broadly focused on our family. There are uh, our family's needs and gatherings and fun times and things like that. The owner's council is uh, four people today. And uh, that group is more, like I say, focused on the business. And that's what I kind of call my, my, and it sounds like I'm possessive of it, but I, as chairman, I need a kitchen cabinet. I need a group of people to whom I can just informally ask and they can be listening posts to the rest of the family for me. They can pick up on things that I may have missed that goes that way. And then also, uh, I need the, the board needs to know that I'm socializing their questions of me that I can, that when they hear from me, it's not just me, Chris reacting. It's something we've talked with the family about, not on small decisions, but on larger appropriate decisions for the shareholders, big M and a, uh, divestitures, uh, big changes to one of our strategies that may have been a long-term strategy that the family started to think of as a inviolate. Well, it's, it's a strategy, you know, it's not our vision and mission. It's strategies can change from time to time. Tactics we almost never come to the family with. And then inside our company at the board level, there are two of us on the board out of nine. So nine non-family, two family. And one of the non-family is our CEO. So really six fully independent outsiders on our board. 
And then inside the company, there are zero employees, zero family employees. There may be one or two from time to time. We've had internships and we've done things like that, but uh, we don't have a rule per se, but we have a practice, a custom of really, really encouraging family members to work outside the business permanently. Mm-hmm. Definitely early in their career, that's a mandate. But beyond that, we, we like to say, you know, you find what makes you come alive and let the family come around you to help you do that. If the business can be helpful in that, great. The odds that you are, you know, wired to be a theme park guy or gal are fairly low, you know, in the context <laughs> of the world, the world's GDP is, you know, could trillions of dollars. And we got this one relatively small company. I show a slide in our family meetings when we talk about this of, you know, the whole slide is one color. It's intended to represent, you know, if you could wheel out and see like, you know, the galaxy and then you wheel all the way in and, you know, we're not just a planet. We're not even a planet. We're like a molecule of dust on one of the planets in the galaxy. And so I, I just think it's highly improbable that you are wired. I I just don't buy the argument of, I learned this business growing up and I was sitting around it and therefore I'm kind of built. No, I mean, you're built to be a hydrologist or an airline pilot or a nurse or a full-time dad or, you know, an engineer. Now you can serve the company with any of those talents, but that shouldn't be your primary mission. Uh, Your primary mission should be to figure yourself out and your parents should be obviously deeply invested in this. And sometimes the family can help, but we really, parents are the most important role, parenting is the most important role in a family business. And so that includes career choices and vocational help and all that kind of stuff. So we want to help parents, but we don't want to mandate what their children do or don't do. And we won't tell them, no, they can't come to work in the business. We will tell them they need to work somewhere else first out of college. But we really, we really want people to feel free to pursue what makes them come fully alive. That's fascinating. And can I ask, does that apply to you too? Do you consider yourself as chairman? Do you consider yourself an employee of the business? Have you been around the business for many years? Or are you playing simply a stewardship and ownership representative role rather than working in the business itself? It's really interesting. So yes, I, I think it applies to me. So I'm a in the United States, we have, you know, two forms of kind of where you get your paychecks. You got W-2s and you got 1099s. And W-2s tend to be employees, full-time employees, and 1099s tend to be. Uh, part-time or outsourced. And I'm a 1099 at Hershen. So as chairman of the board, I'm a non-executive chair. And coming in to this role, uh, my career was outside the company, college, uh, career in a multinational here in Atlanta, and then met my wife and decided to stay in Atlanta and then took a job with a venture capital firm and had some great experiences. And so I guess that totaled up to about eight years. Then went back to business school, interned at another large family-owned diversifier here in Atlanta, loved it, learned a ton. And at that time, had job offers to continue to stay outside. But I loved our CEO. Our CEO at the time was a really, really effective leader and a really great model for me, I felt, to follow just in leadership, regardless of where the industry was. So I took a fairly significant pay cut to come work for Joel Manby was his name, is his name. And uh, Joel left us in 2015. So this was, you know, a couple of decades almost before that. So, and so I really loved working uh, here in that role, uh, that first role, which was a business development. And then I took a line job, but then I 
did a management buyout of the division that I was running. It wasn't a perfect fit for our company. It wasn't growing at the rate we needed it to grow. It just kind of made some sense to kind of spin it out. So we talked to other firms and then ultimately I chose to make an offer and I bought the business. So then wow. I became I became a partner with my family and the family had a shot to buy the business too. And we did all, you know, the board was awesome and a huge help in that process because they gave the whole family assurance that yes, this was a fair process and Chris is paying a fair price. And by the way, if anybody else wants to pay this price or more, you're welcome to. Here's the, you know, here are the financials of this division. So that was in the 2010 timeframe. And so then I became a partner with the company. And then I later sold that business, but I was in the mix that whole time, that entire thread from before business school, even I'd been elected to serve on our board as an observer at first, and then ultimately as a uh, regular director. And so I was on the board through all of that. And it, you know, it just never fit. It was never a job. You know, the board service was always a very different hat. And so, and so we've had other family members serve on the board during that time, uh, some of whom have worked in the business for a season or even concurrently. But the vast majority of our family member directors, which, which I would include myself uh, now, have other jobs, have other work they do. So over time, I have morphed <laughs> in the last couple of years. We have set up a family office and I share leadership responsibility for that with my cousin, Austin. Austin and I are both on the board at Hershen and we both lead the family office and it is a it's a joy to work together and it's a separate company that he and I started essentially but it is um it is very different than the model of you know I'm an executive chairman or I'm you know the CEO or the CEO's right hand we really work hard to make sure that our CEO has room to run and that we're not sitting over his shoulder in his management team meetings and that we're not second guessing certainly not in front of anybody. We have robust conversations one-on-one, -on -one, but uh, he's he's the chief executive. And my job isn't to assert my personality or my will. And therefore, I'm not, the, I'm not an executive chair. Amazing. So many threads that I want to follow. Thank you for sharing all of this with us. The first clarification I want to touch on is the, you talked about a couple of times, the growing complexity around fractional ownership, the growing stockholder base. I assume that the 54-odd family members are stockholders and there's no outside shareholding? Is it still 100% family-owned or is there some uh, external investment in the business? Uh, no, we're 100% family-owned and about half, the share, about half the family members are also shareholders. It's a lineal, how would I say, it always loops back to the lineal descendant. So it's, it's totally permissible in our shareholder agreement for a spouse to own shares um, even after a lineal descendant's spouse's death, but at that spouse's death, they, they can't go any further. They can't go to a new spouse, and then they need to loop back into the, the family for their children to receive the shares or their in-laws, their brothers and sisters who are lineal descendants who uh, survive. So it's a, I'd say it's a fairly typical structure here in the U.S. I, I hear a lot of uh, family businesses that do not have shareholder agreements in place, and that that's a that's a mandatory first step. You know, you got to have a shareholder agreement before you do anything else. And it doesn't need to be as restrictive as ours. It could be more liberal than ours, but every system has to have sort of rules of engagement and uh, entry and, and a common set of standards. And I'm, I, I know there are shareholder agreements in place as part of an incorporation package in most cases, but, but really I'd encourage anybody to 
make sure you stop and look at that uh, first. And then you define shareholders. Then you can define the other things we've talked about, family, board, management, all that, all those roles. So I assume family members can't sell their shares outside of the family. Well, they, they could, but it would have to go through all the family first, and then the company would have the option. And then if everybody declined, I guess, yes, there is no, there's no uh, prohibition against that. But our practice is they stay, the company always is in a position to exercise that option if it need be. First rider refusal. Okay. Yeah. And then there's, you know, we, we offer a, a redemption package that's in place so people can put their shares to the company first if they choose. And that's an important gate. Everybody needs to know there's a way out. We've had a fairly modest number of transactions over the years, even between family. The shareholdings have been fairly static with the exception of estate planning. And I know families that are much more dynamic, and maybe that's something in our future, dynamic trading market inside the family. I mean, and that may well be in our future, but our, our experience has been, uh, it's been fairly static. There have been liquidity trades and a couple of divorces. People needed to redeem shares for cash, which, you know, you would, I would try to prevent if I could, if I could design a system that made that uh, less necessary. And there are ways to do that. But at the time, we just didn't have those in place. So I assume that the shareholding base is just going to continue to multiply as you grow into the fourth and fifth generation, this notion that families often grow faster than businesses, will you end up with a shareholding base that grows from 50 to a hundred to 500 and continue on and on? Yeah. Yeah. I assume so. I assume so because it doesn't concern me if the growth rate of the family exceeds the growth rate of the business that just lowers per capita wealth, paper wealth. Uh, or if you were going to try to fix it off a dividend, you know, that that doesn't concern me. I think when people refer to that as a disqualifying event, I think, well, you know, I mean, I own shares of companies with a lot of other shareholders. And, you know, I, I look at the the I don't look at my wealth as a fairness issue. I look at it as a risk and reward issue. And what am I willing to sacrifice in terms of liquidity or other other resources to hold on to that wealth? So growth rates of the family the the family grows at a uh, exponential rate over time it, it's well i guess not exponential it does the curve is pretty steep yep and that's uh that's a good thing uh, i think that's a good thing we 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 also love the challenge of growing the business that's one of our three shareholder objectives is growth and part of the reason is because we want to keep up with the family but it's way less important to us than providing attractive opportunities for the best leadership talent in the world come work with us and stay with us. Great leaders want to grow. They want to be challenged. They want to be pushed. They want to find new ways to express uh, our mission and our vision. And they want to find new ways to push themselves, new geographies, new products, new markets, new customers. Uh, So growth is really important to us. I'd love to touch on the family office that you mentioned. You've set it up with Austin. Is that for your two immediate families and descendants, or is it a family office for the entire family and representing the entire stockholding base? Because it sounds like you've got such fractional ownership that ownership would almost, or or wealth and dividends would almost need to be pooled into a family office in order to steward for the benefit of everyone. Is this sort of more of a private vehicle that you've set up? So it's for everybody and we designed it for everybody. Uh, We made it optional for everybody and we sort of not sort of, we deliberately chose this structure after a lot of tax planning and consultation on behalf of the entire family. We had a, so we were, I would call this era three of how we've handled 
wealth. Arrow one, <laughs> arrow zero is no dividends, no cash coming out of the business. Every single nickel gets reinvested to pay down debt or to grow. Uh, that went on for about 40, 30 something years into the 80s. Era one, then I would say, is when we first started paying a modest dividend, a regular modest dividend. It started out with a larger dividend, a one, what we perceived as a, a one time thing at the time. And that was the first time my dad, my uncle, you know, their families, I was a, you know, an elementary school kid at the time, you know, they could buy a boat. <laughs> or buy a vacation house, or we, we started going on planes for our vacations for the first time. <laughs> My vacations growing up, we were always, I'm one of five siblings, we would pack in the van, we hauled U-Haul, we'd go to the Gulf Coast of Florida, and, you know, great memories, but, uh, you know, very, very distinctly remember the first time we actually had a little money to spend, and that was about the time, coincidentally, that we had G2 going off to college, and, you know, the, it's a very normal and a healthy thing, I think. Uh, but it was not a wealth-making event independent of the business. It was just simply, ah, uh, okay. And the board was really instrumental in sort of picking the right time to begin doing that. Uh, so then uh, phase two, I would say, was a uh, we started to pool some of our dividends together to invest together, just on all the logic of economies of scale, stewardship, better accounting, better sources, better reason. Not everybody is gifted investor. We had 20 or so family members at the time who were sort of consuming dividends. And we thought, that's your right. There's a lot of nannying that goes on in larger family business where certain family members tend to look down on other family members' choices with respect to their spending habits. And I wasn't a fan of the school that says, you're wrong and I'm right and you do it my way and I'm going to take care of you by not letting you have any of your money. I think that's a path to decline and conflict. So we really want people to choose what to do. A functioning adult should choose what to do with their own cash. Now, I, I said cash, not equity. I don't necessarily view that. I, I totally don't uh, view their, their investment in the company on the same level. Their investment in the company is a shared risk pool. We have agreed to extremely low levels of autonomy there, right? We're, so we're putting our cash in the company and holding it there and shepherding it carefully together. Outside the company, you should be able to do what you want. Now, there's a certain amount of money where once it starts to come out of the company, it makes a lot of sense to save and to invest it and not just to consume it or keep it in cash. So, and that's different for every family. And so we started a, we created an investment partnership and we started a uh, invest together. And at first it was mandatory, which this is part of my, the strength of my feeling on what I just shared with you. We mandated it at first. We said, we won't send this money out unless you agree to immediately drop it into this partnership. And then the partnership agreement said, you can't touch it for five years. And that was a big mistake of mine and of our board at the time. Our board at the operating company, I think inappropriately, we extended ourselves into the family's business at that point. And it created resentment. It created resentment for the way it was handled, for the manner, for the voice, for the messaging, and just the the sheer sort of you know communication of we can't trust you with your own money. That was a big mistake, and it could have taken us out. It could have it could have cost us the operating business as well. Not because of a financial breakdown at the operating business; it was running really well, but just the lack, the perceived lack of trust, and the enmity that kind of sprang up around these issues. So. That was a big mistake. And then we tried to fix it now in phase three, which is, 
you know, we repaired some of the damage we had done in phase two by sort of deconstructing some of those systems and, and sort of saying, you're right, we should have done it differently and here's, you know, access and so on. And ultimately now in phase three, we've set up a clean new structure. We actually called the project, uh, Project New House. We, we, we felt like we were renovating the old house. Like, you know how you have a strange bathroom and the plumbing comes out through the wall and goes up. And so we just said, let's start this over and let's clean, let's do a, a clean foundation. So we built that together. And Austin and I did the design work and the, and the carrying. We, would have, we could have just as easily had a widely owned family office. Austin and I own it together mostly as a function of making decisions quickly, but it's designed to make zero money. Uh, it should make zero money. So Austin and I own a business together, but it, it will be the least valuable business that uh, you know anybody owns because any of our clients can leave at any time with no penalty. And there's so there's, there's no uh, gates that keep people in. Now, when you choose as a family member to invest in one of our investment partnerships underneath that, there are some liquidity constraints for some of those, but we've sort of covenanted with the family not sort of explicitly covenanted with the family about what our asset allocation is and how many of our dollars are going to go to those kind of investments and what's their access to their money and what are the rules around that. That was really important. So, and in that company, we do, you know, we do a lot of fairly uh, standard investing, uh, liquid and illiquid and so on. And it's a very different kind of business than our operating business. Again, another fascinating answer. This is terrific. I'm curious what value your family places on documenting its history? Do you have any keepsakes, heirlooms, or particular traditions that are meaningful to your history? And you did mention also a family assembly earlier. I wonder if there's particular things that you do at the family assembly with the wider group to help keep a tight knit amongst the wider family group, even with those that aren't involved in the operating business or investment partnership. Yes. The simplest, most fundamental thing we do is we gather. You you can't trust somebody if you don't know them. You can't know them if you never see them. If you don't see how they dress, how they are with their, their wife, their kids, if you don't know how they respond to a bad knock-knock joke, if you don't play and hang out around the pool, are, do they hold their liquor well? Are they you know, are they, are they morning people, all this stuff, you just get that from hanging out together. And so we are, we are over 20 years now into a rhythm of meeting twice a year as a family. And on my, on my wall here in my office, I have my uncle's letter to the family around our first shareholder meeting, which was 30 years ago. I was in college, you know, the address for my siblings, my younger siblings is their home address. Literally my parents' house, mine's my dorm in Colorado. Um, So it was a sweet thing, but that was not a that was a business meeting over Thanksgiving break. What I'm referring to is, and that's fine. We, you know, we go away and we try to make it like a reunion. We try to make it fun. We definitely have business on the agenda, appropriate business on the agenda. Again, we're not designing and approving capital and things like that, but we way more heavily emphasize, let's just make this fun for our younger family members. My uncle said it really well once he just said, we talked about what we should be doing for our little kids at these meetings. Should we pay for babysitters? I mean, we we're arguing over these kinds of things, and which now seems silly in hindsight. Of course you pay for babysitters. Of course. Do you go to a nice resort or do you go to a place that's really cheap but very, you know, very nearby? You go to the nicest place you can afford because you want people to want to take a couple of days off work. Mm-hmm. You want them to want to bring their family. You want them to want to be there. Do you pay for their meals, for their flights? Yes, if you can, by all means, please. You'd be amazed what millionaires would do 
for a $250 plane ticket. It's hilarious. <laughs> so we, we want, my uncle said this about our, our, our cousins. He just said, you know, I, I quote him a lot because I think he's an inspired leader, but I want you to understand he is, we call him and my dad our godfathers. They're inspirational to us, but they are so, I mentioned their humility earlier. They are so insistent on not being the center of our universe. So I want to just underscore that, particularly for G1 and founders and patriarchs and matriarchs on the phone. Like when they gave up their formal titles and roles, which they did in the early 2000s, they traded those in for truckloads of influence. They traded in position for influence. When they gave it up gently, without me pushing, without anybody kicking, without anybody crying. In fact, we were saying, no, stick around a little longer. You know, there was some tension. There was always tension around this transition. But in our family, it was, I mean, these guys left way ahead of time. And as a result, now in their deep into their 80s, they're still able to joyfully interact with all of us because there's little to no bitterness, really no bitterness around their transitions. Anyway, back to my uncle's quote. He just said, I just want these kids to learn to love each other. It's really, we talked about doing curriculum and teaching them about how to manage money and all that stuff. And we just had, we had squirmy kids. We've had people come in from all over the country, all over the world, really, to teach us. And that works to a certain level with adults. But with the kids, we put them in a classroom environment in these meetings and they, they torture these teachers. So we just said, you know, that's actually okay. Maybe that's more important that they conspired to, you know, sneak out of class together <laughs> than that they were not in class. And build those bonds. And so... Yeah. And so we've got stories. I mean, I've got a brother in California with kids that know my kids in Georgia and, and, you know, we've got, so that just doesn't happen on its own. The natural pull of a nuclear family is to kind of pull away from its predecessor family because everybody marries somebody with parents and those parents, and if you're lucky, invite you to their holiday traditions and their families. And so that's a, that's a split. That's at least a half split. And I know a lot of successful families that have had people marry in. And there's great tension because that person who married in, well, he's got a neat family too. And now you feel like you're spending all your time with her family mm-hmm. because they have a business. Well, does that make, does, does their business make them more worthy of our time? That seems like a terrible trade. So you have to make it attractive. You have to make it appealing. You have to be humble about it and understand not every family is going to come every year. But you want to make it something that's so dang attractive that it's a can't miss or don't want to miss. Sounds amazing. Can I and, can I come? And that's and that's when, <laughs> yeah. Well, and then you get and then you and there's a family in Seattle, Laird the Laird Norton, uh, you know, fantastic. Well over I think now 300 family members. They're the gold standard in the U.S. There are a number of families in Europe and and in Asia I think that have been doing this longer than most American families. But you know, it becomes about the family. And you happen to own an asset together and you got truck drivers and you got bajillionaires and they're in the same meeting and they're wearing the same stupid t-shirt or whatever it is that you're doing that year. There's just a great unity in that. And it's something you can't, you cannot buy it. You could not create it out of thin air. It can only be done. And the compounding value of doing it year over year over year, again, you cannot jump into that. And so that's one of the reasons it's so precious and costly when you exit a system like this out of bitterness or some other change, it can't be replaced. And so we work like crazy to say, look, if you choose to sell all of your shares, fine, you're still coming to the family meeting. Now, you may not sit in the part of the meeting where we talk about 
you know, our equity and our investments and all that stuff. But we're still, you're for sure still going to be part of our family. If you choose to be, you're going to be welcome at these dinners. You're going to be welcome at these meals. We're going to go, you know, shoot things together or fish together or whatever. So we do men's retreats now. We do women's retreats. We've done generational retreats. I mean, we have a fairly significant amount of operational energy through our family office now uh, on hosting meetings, gathering meetings. We're like a little, like a little meeting planner you know, service, uh, adventure, travel, whatever. We, we really believe in that. At the same time, we do a lot of family business education. We send people to conferences. We send people to, you know, to, to meet with other families because that context is invaluable. If once you meet another family that's doing what you're doing and you see, oh, wow, man, we could copy some of that or we could learn a lot from them. And that's really, really important to you. So we do technical, but I'd say we're 10% technical, 90% relationship incredible journey that you're on. I was going to ask how you've gained your knowledge uh, to this robust extent running a family enterprise as you have. It sounds like you've compounded the knowledge over many years and and experimented with different things, but are there any key resources or uh, training programs or things that your family has invested in to help you get where you are today? Yes. Excellent. yes so no i i I would say we were a so i i shared about the board the board was our first training resource that was bringing external resources and experts into our family at a fairly intimate level right and then they began to kind of should on us you know you should do this you should do that and that was super helpful i know that in some circles we we sort of say no we don't want that that's super helpful. When you don't know what you're doing, you do need somebody to kind of say, have you thought about, and you really ought to. So, but from a, what I'll call the, what would I call this? So everything I just described, the board and the operating partnership between my dad and my uncle in that phase of sort of sophistication, which was, I think, highly sophisticated for their industry, certainly for their industry and for their era and their geography and their relationships. These were not guys who went to elite private schools in the Northeastern United States who had tons of multifamily, multi-generational wealth friends. These were, you know, children of immigrants who really were kind of trying to figure it out. What were they going to do for their own careers? My dad was a forestry management major. And so the first thing we did that it kind of spring from a well-managed, humbly managed operating business to a more well-managed family business was really just asking. I cold called, I I got a newsletter. The family business consulting group here in the U.S. at the time was sending out a paper newsletter. And I just remember, I think uh, my dad or my uncle had signed me up for this, which was very enlightened of them. And uh, some of the ideas that they'd followed had come from this kind of resource. We'd never had a consultant come in and talk to us about being a family business before, but I, I cold called them and they they said, well, where do you live? I said, Atlanta. And they said, well, you know, we got a guy in Atlanta. Maybe you guys should meet. And I said, okay. And I didn't know. I didn't know you were supposed to pay these people. I didn't know. <laughs> and so um, a gentleman named Phil Sidwell, who's since retired, took me to breakfast. And and I sort of sketched out for him what I thought I knew about the business. And anyway, and and then Phil's investment in me turned into, you know, some of our first policies and family business policies. And then my first conferences. And I started to say, well, maybe... I heard about this conference. Maybe I can go. A very typical progression, right? I just started to listen quietly in the back of the room and and observe and talk to people at our table breakouts. And I'd be like, wow, oh my gosh. You know, and I was starstruck by some of the businesses because I was kind of a business geek. 
and I loved, you know, some of these other companies. And I didn't yet know that it was important to regard a family business differently. I, I just, or to me, it, it was. So I, I just kind of soaked it up and I started calling and then we, I said, well, let's try that. And we experimented with things. And then I went to business school and, and started peppering my professors with, well, if this is the way we calculate the cost of capital in a private, in a public company, how does that apply to my company? I would bring in my balance sheet and we, you know, we do, we do that kind of work. And so, and then I found other people in business school who had the same kind of background. Um, not many, right? It's, it's rare. And it was perceived as sort of an economic backwater. It's perceived as like, okay, you got a chain of dry cleaning co- shops. Isn't that cute? Um, or whatever, you know, yeah. it's perceived as a mom and pop. You say family business, people perceive it as mom and pop. And I was like, I just don't feel like that's how we're run. I mean, we got this great board and these CEOs on our board and we got a, we got a brilliant CEO. And so I really started to feel a little chip on my shoulder. I was like, you know, we need to, I kind of want to tell everybody, not that I would tell them, but I mean, I kind of wanted to show everybody that we were as well run as any of the companies that I'd seen in my career or that I'd met in business school or recruited with in, in B school. And, um, so that was kind of fun. I, I kind of felt like that's a mission that I could kind of get excited about. But in the process, of course, it quickly became less about caring what they thought to just stealing their best ideas. <laughs> and so, and then we rapidly started sharing that same experience. And I joined YPO, which was like a, like a, like a rocket fuel for all of that, as far as context and relationships and introductions. And, and then we started rapidly proliferating the who attends into the whole family. I was getting extremely well fed with relationships and context. And the, most of my family was not. And when we started to say, instead of let's just meet, we're going to continue to meet. We started to bring people into our meetings. I found that to be less effective than sending people out into the world. Cause you just, you see other families and it just changes everything. You start to realize, you know, there's, oh my gosh, they do that too. Or they struggle with this or, you know, passive shareholders meeting other passive shareholders is priceless. Uh, so I would say, and now we spend on average, I think I added it up the other day for somebody who asked, I think we, we budget $2,000 per cap per year for education. So obviously our five-year-olds aren't consuming a lot of education, uh, you know, but we, you know, we, we may well send people to a 10 or $12,000, uh, in uh, conference, which we never would have done at the beginning of this. We had to work our way up to that, but I'm telling you the dividends are fantastic in terms of understanding and unity and sort of just general support of what we're doing and, and the, and the decisions we make. Cause it's a lot of what we do would be counterintuitive. If you just looked at it, if you flew in, looked at it and flew out and didn't have any context. That's amazing. And it sounds like both the business and the family are demonstrating lifelong learning values, which is another value of YPO, but it, you, you describe it as a journey and I'm sure you're still attending all of these conferences and, and soaking up all of these resources today. Well, and I, and I learned so much. This is one of the reasons I want to do this podcast, right? When I get asked to, to share a story, I almost always say yes. I mean, I almost never say no because it, it is fundamental. The, the peer learning aspect of YPO, but also a lot of these conferences and there, it is, it's fundamental to the way most people tend to learn. Like you said uh, to me earlier, you know, stories are better than, you know, just facts. And so people are more easy to remember and recall even than companies. And so I've been to multiple conferences where I'll leave and I'll say, now, who was that company? I don't know, but it was this woman who spoke about the way they handle, the way they calculated the right way to 
decide on dividends. And that was fascinating. And I wrote it down and now I need to call her to say, now, could you make correct my notes? And, and then you, she says, well, how do you do it? And you know, you just start talking there. You should be fearless. I mean, you as a, and this is similar to how you reached out to me and how they're really, when, when somebody calls and says, Hey, I, I have a small family business or a new or a, an old one. And I'm just now getting into leadership of it. I'd love to learn from how you do it. I, I think the family business community has been incredibly generous to me with their time. And it's made a huge difference for our family, I think. So um, for any of you out there that I've, that I've cold called or collared uh, or, or you've shared time with me, I, I thank you. I thank you. And so I'm trying to do the same here now uh, with you, Mike, and, and uh, hopefully it's helpful. And I greatly appreciate it, Chris. Thank you. And careful what you wish for, because there'll be a number of people listening to this that I better digging up your email address as they listen, no doubt. Chris, we've got time for just one final question. And it's a question that we ask all of our guests. And um, it is, imagine you're writing a letter to your children. What is one lesson or idea that you don't think many parents would mention, but you consider important to understand? So I do write letters to my children. Oh, tell me about that. <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would be one thing I would say is is you know write letters to your children. And I, I used to do a sort of a time capsule letter every year. I don't do that as frequently now as they they're older and there's just a lot more direct communication and a lot more uh, of that even even in writing. But I think the 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 thing we Ashley and I have reinforced the most to our kids. And like I say, Ashley's job and my wife's job in our family and our family business is the most important job. My job as a dad is significantly more important than my job as chairman, like multiple orders of magnitude more important. I could quit this job today and hopefully find something else to do where I'd get paid. But, <laughs> but, um, I, I think I could make more money doing something else than I do as this, but there's no way I could compete with the the joy I feel in serving my family. But as a dad, it's it's way beyond that. It's way, way, way beyond that. And so what we always tell our kids is it's not about you. It's not about you, and you are not your own. So we tend to think, and certainly in America, the most glorious expression of somebody's existence is a self-made man and the American dream or somebody who sort of rose up and I don't think even for the most entrepreneurial person on the planet, that's actually true because every single one of us had certain things invested in us, God-given talents and abilities even. If that's all you got, you did not will that from the womb, right? That was something that was that was dropped into you. And so I have a, a scripture on my wall uh, from the Old Testament of the Bible. So this is, I don't know, 5,000-year-old from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, and it says, you know, basically, I'm reading it here on my wall, so I'll get it right. And one of my daughters wrote it in calligraphy for me a couple of years ago, so it's harder to read now than it used to be. <laughs> but it basically says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that uh, he's promised you, and he gives you cities that you did not build, and all kinds of good things that you did not provide, and vines and that you did not plant, uh, don't forget, right? Don't forget where those came from. That's especially easy. That was a paraphrase. That's especially easy in a family business, right? Because I, I didn't create this business. Mm. It came to me. It came to me. And so I tell the kids all the time, you know, it's just your, your job is not to pat yourself on the back and to say, oh, isn't this great? And then just consume it. Your job is to really, is to steward it. And so the wealth that they're going to inherit is almost going to be entirely invested and locked up in this company. They're not going to invest. They're not going to receive a bunch of cash from us. That's a, 
That's a terrible thing to give children. Just a bunch of cash and a bunch of go. So we want them to steward this business with their siblings and cousins. And that requires self-sacrifice, an attitude of others ahead of self, delayed gratification, your willingness to persuade and influence. All of that is a stewardship of gifts they've been given. And they are not there to just serve and feed themselves. The business isn't there to simply provide for their lifestyles or their reputation or whatever. It's really meant to be a blessing. It's a blessing to them, hopefully, but they're really through this business blessing, literally in our case, millions of people every year, millions of people, less in 2020, but that'll, we'll get back, you know, that'll get back. But I mean, there was a point during this pandemic where I, where I, I was worried we were going to lose the company. I mean, this is a business that relies on in-person visits, right? And we were under-levered going into the crisis. There were all kinds of things. My kids knew most of what I was carrying here. We don't, we don't talk about this much at dinner, but they could see and they knew. My kids are teenagers. So there was a lot of good discussion, but I, just, I was able at one point to say to them, you know, I feel like we received this business and if it goes away, it's not the end of the world. It's something to fight for, but not to cling to. We'll still have each other and we'll still be able to tomorrow pick ourselves up and go on to do something else. And, and that's because you've been given way more than just a bunch of money and the money can come and go. And so that's the kind of thing we tell our kids all the time. And I've probably done more damage to that message by my example, because I, you know, like anybody else, I tend to like and trust in the things I can touch and see and control. And I think that you know, what I hope the kids see in me and Ashley is the the core of that message ringing true despite failure and mistakes and hubris and all the other things that creep in. Hopefully, they see us consistently apply that uh, over time and that it's more true than false. But it's certainly, it's certainly been important to us. And, and we've, we've just said that to them repeatedly from, from when they were infants till now. It's just, you know, it's not about you, although we love you. Amazing. Amazing values and amazing lessons. Chris, this has just been incredible. Thank you so much. We, we are going to have to do it again because I think, I, I think I've generated another 50 questions that I'd like to ask you, but uh, we'll have to save that for, uh, for round two. Thank you so much for sharing as openly as you have done. I, I think it's incredibly inspiring and there's a great deal of takeaway for everybody listening, including myself. So thanks again. Hey, man, it was my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Mike. To find more episodes of the Business of Family podcast, go to businessoffamily.net. You can also sign up for my email list at newsletter.mikeboyd.com.au. After you sign up, you'll receive immediate access to all past issues and then one email per week. You can also follow me on Twitter using at Mike Boyd. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes, which will help more people discover the business of family. Thank you so much for listening.